0: here we are. Who'd have thunk it? 2016. Last week we spent some time, appropriately I think, it's the last of the year, the last Sunday of the year, just kind of sets up to um, look back and to recap the year. I think any of us at the end of a year, if we have any spiritual sense about us, know that we should take a little bit of time and just look back and All of those re-words, remember, recap, uh, reflect, review, release, maybe re-embrace, but just look back in hindsight and say, what has happened to me, in me, through me this year? Um, Just a moment, just a 30, 45 second exercise. When I say 2015. If I hold the, if I'm the psychiatrist and I hold the flashcard up and the ink blot's 2015, what do you feel? What was 2015 for you? I, I know that's a, an oversimplified question, but, and we can't dig down into it fully in 45 seconds. But 2015, cat, 2015, pretty good, new baby. Wow. Last week I spent the better part of my week with uh, friends in Louisiana and laid to rest a four, my 45-year-old childhood friend. Grew up together our whole life. His father and my father, I said St. Louis Cardinals to Doug, they're big St. Louis Cardinal fans. My dad and his dad have been best friends since they were 11 years old. So 60 years, best friendship, unremitting, never stopped. It's one of those real valuable things that just is really precious to watch, and they've they've just um, always been there for 60 years. Well, Jerry lost his son that I grew up with, Jeff, last week, and that's an unthinkable thing to lay your child to rest, and some of you have had to do that. Uh, Amazingly, earlier in the year, in May, Jeff, the young man that we laid to rest last week, lost his 17 year old son to a car accident. So, in in one year, 2015, this family, Jerry, laid to rest his grandson, Drew, and then his son. And so. You know, it's, it's the gravity of things like that that makes you, if you sit in my seat and have the responsibility to just kind of facilitate and help us think spiritually, you know, you don't just glibly say, what was 2015 for you? I mean, what's 2015 for that family? How do you frame that? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I do know there are ways to frame it, and I watched them even beginning the process of framing it um, last week. Um, I, I watched the mother of the 17-year-old boy Jeff and she had gone through a divorce years before but she was there and I watched her at the graveside and I walked up to her put my arm around her and she looked at me and she said promise me 2016 is going to be better and um, I couldn't but I did I promised her absolutely on my authority 2016 was going to be a lot better which is not much authority. But at the end of the year whether it's new babies or processes like that, it's good for us just to stop and to frame the past. All the ways the old hymn said our Savior has led us. Savior like a shepherd lead us. We take time at the end of the year to frame the past, to frame our experiences to look back with no judgment but just as objectively as we can and say this happened I don't understand it I don't know particularly how to frame it but you just start with a sense of awareness and, and and you work through the awareness and and if you do good spiritual work I think awareness finally leads to some sense of expression Jesus didn't say tolerated are those who mourn he said blessed are those who mourn and and blessed are those who celebrate I think at some point there has to be this sense of either releasing, letting go, forgiving, or embracing with deep gratitude and giving thanks. But whatever the process, we move through awareness, expression, forgiveness, gratitude, hope for change. That's end of the year stuff. And I, I thought we did that last week really well, and I hope that even through the process of the week you continued that. Today I want to turn, appropriately I think, I mean it's the first of the year, and I actually like this better. And I want to spend some time looking forward, Um, January 3rd, a whole year ahead of us, I suppose. Um, And I want to look forward, remembering that it was Habakkuk, the old Jewish prophet who said in the absence of a vision, you remember this, in the absence of a vision, what happens to people? They, They perish. If people don't have this compelling sense, this, this something inside of them that causes them to lift their head, even out, I mean, standing at a graveside, she looked up and she said, tell me 2016 is going to be better. There was something, Steve, entered that said, it can be better. It will be better. Out, out of the ashes, the phoenix will rise. I mean, in, in embedded in Christianity at a cellular level is this idea of a Paschal cycle. And oh, thank God that we finally realize that that Paschal cycle of life and death and burial and resurrection is not just a historical moment that we celebrate from 2,000 years ago, but the reality of what we see in the Christ story is an ongoing reality continually. We are forever living and dying and being buried and rebirthing. The born-again experience that Jesus spoke of is not a one-time experience. It is a lifelong process of spring and summer and winter and fall. So we take some time, Habakkuk said, to to vision. We we take some time to look ahead and say, one of the things that actually keeps us alive in the winter is the thought of spring. One of the things that buoys and sustains uh, a mother who's laid to rest a child is that there is still life and, and that he even hasn't disappeared. But he is somewhere, and, and in our faith system he's somewhere sustained. And life continues in a different form, a different chapter. And if the dead are in Christ and Christ is with us, then the dead are in us and they are with us in a special way. And it doesn't require a seance to believe that. There is a living reality that Jesus said is bigger than anything we call death, anything bigger than we call winter. That's the hope, that's the living peace that comes through that Paschal cycle. Habakkuk knew that long before a resurrection. Habakkuk said, unless people have this sense of being able to vision, to lift their head up out of the muck and the mire and, and to look forward, they die. Those are the stories that came to us even from the death camps of Auschwitz and Buchenwald and Dachau. People who were able to look through the bars of present misery and thousands of people, you've heard the story, thousands of people avoiding a little daisy that grew up through the concrete crack. One little daisy in a a concrete hell and thousands of starving prisoners take time to honor That's what the Paschal Cycle says, that death cannot be great enough to squash life. It can't. Life is always springing up to the cracks and the crevices, and ultimately the moral arc of the universe is bending toward good. And Julian is right, that all manner of things shall be well, and that's the thing that lifts us, Habakkuk said, and causes us in the most desperate and dire of circumstances, at the end of a good year or a bad year, to say, I'm going to find a vision. I'm going to look up and I'm going to look out. Interestingly, one common denominator, and there are several that I won't go into, but one common denominator shared by last week and this week. Last week we were talking about looking back. This week we're talking about looking forward. Well, a common denominator, very obviously, is looking. In, in both cases, we're looking. Whether it's back or forward, we're using, we're using these things that. Jesus didn't call them this, but he really indicated it in his teaching, these things called soulish eyes. Remember, he healed one blind guy, and the religious folk got all up in arms about it, and Jesus looked at them and said, I would to God I could heal your blindness. The blindness that encumbered him, the blindness that The blindness that he endures, nothing compared to your blindness. Jesus often quoted Isaiah, and, and he said, having eyes to see, they don't see. In other words, having physical eyes, they see, and yet with their soulish eyes, they don't see. With the eyes that really matter, they don't see. He would often look at the Pharisees with their eyes wide open and say, you blind guides. You don't see. Jesus talked a lot about looking he talked a lot about visioning seeing he talked a lot about eyes in Revelation the third chapter that apocalyptic kind of scary book stuck at the end of our Bible a lot of people don't know what to do with it but there are some exquisite pieces of wisdom in that one of them is found in Revelation the third chapter when the angel spoke to the church at Laodicea and the angel said You are blind, poor, wretched, naked, and miserable, but worse than all of that is you don't know it. You're blind, he said. You think you see, but you don't see at all. And then then came this word, and we could talk a lot about why they didn't see, and I think there are multiple reasons, and all of us could examine our own lives why sometimes we fail to see. Lots of reasons, but... Beautifully the angel spoke to them, the word of Christ, and the word of Christ was this, you're blind and you don't know it, but I counsel you to buy of me eye salve that you might see. You see, I have, I have a salve of the spirit that actually can, can touch calloused eyes and restore them to sight. How do our eyes get calloused? Well, it's interesting, there in Laodicea, Laodicea was a, 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 a medicinal capital Um, We know historically that in Laodicea, an ophthalmological, if that's the right way of saying that, an ophthalmological, optometric advancement had been made in medicine because Laodicea sat on the other side of a desert and often weary travelers coming through, merchants coming through Laodicea had experienced, especially in the summer months, a blinding wind that blew sand in their eyes and so dried their eyes out that Laodicean doctors had developed a salve for the eyes of people who had road-weary eyes. Interesting that to the Laodiceans the Lord spoke and said, I have eye salve for you. Because the journey of life does have its sand and blistering winds, and it can callous your eyes. Cataracts spiritually can grow. I remember standing beside my old great-granddad years ago, I don't know if I was 12 or 14, maybe, and he had those big green post-cataract removal glasses on, and it was the day that he was supposed to take them off and be able to endure some sense of sun, and I went out with him. I took him by the hand. We went outside. He said, I'm take my glasses off because it was kind of an overcast day, and he thought he could stand the sun. And I remember he took the glasses off to look up into the sky, and when he did, I'll never forget what he said he looked up into the tree that had been there in the front yard of his own for the last 50 years where he had lived, and he said to me, this 80-year-old man looked at me, and he said, oh, my goodness, Stan, it has leaves. And I didn't know what he was saying. Of course, he knew it had leaves. But the blindness, the slow-growing cataract, had blinded him in such a way that he did not even recognize along the way what he was losing. Life can do that to us. Sometime there are devastating moments, the loss of a child that may render someone completely blind, but more often than not, life has a way of doing this slow-growing cataract to us to where we don't even recognize that what once we saw with acuity, What once impressed us through its acuity and detail now has just become a green blob. And I watched an 80-some-odd-year-old man stand there and muse, it has leaves. He was a painter. He was an artist. And I watched him. He took his finger. He always sketched with his finger. He was the song leader at our church. And when he would sing that song, The Love of God, and say, if the... If every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above, whenever he would sing that, he would always close his eyes and he would take his fingers and he would paint in the sky with it. So he was always doing that. And I I watched him on this day, that old artist. He looked up at the tree and he began to trace it. And he said to me, can you see the purples and the pinks and the orange? I looked up and saw a green tree. And I said, no, it's green. He said, no, 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 there are purples in there and blues. I finally left him, 82 years old, standing outside looking at an oak tree. I have eye salve that I could apply to your eyes and help you see. On that same compound, on that same compound years before. My grandmother had taken my Aunt Janice at five years old to the doctor, Dr. Hardcastle, the uh, ophthalmologist there in town. My grandmother said it was one of the heartbreaking moments of my parenting when he came in and sat down with me and said, Miss George, your daughter is legally blind. Grandmother said, I looked at him and said, it can't be. She said, immediately, I had the shame and the guilt. What a horrible mother I am, five years old, and I didn't know my daughter was legally blind. And he said, Miss George, give yourself grace. This is a congenital defect that has come on so gradually and slowly that she doesn't even recognize what's happened to her. She was fitted for glasses that day. They pulled up a hundred feet from where my granddad and I later stood looking at the oak tree. They pulled up to their house. My grandmother said, we got out. I was still kind of carrying that load of guilt. And she said, as I walked up the stairs into the house, I lost Janice. And she said, I turned around. And as I turned around, she said, that five-year-old girl was holding up a leaf. And she said, Mama, it has lines. It has lines. My grandmother said, I went back down and watched a little girl hold a leaf. And trace the lines. I didn't know they had lines. Life has a way of slowly blinding us. Life has a way of damaging eyes and we can come out of years beat up and our soulish eyes can take on fear and scarcity. Wounds can go so deep that we lose the lines and the traces and the definition and the purples and the hues and the shades of life. But at the first of the year, the Spirit of God speaks to us and says, if that's happened to you in 2015, I have eye salve. I could touch your eyes with this eye salve and if I touch your eyes with this eye salve, your eyes could be restored. I think about the ministry of Jesus. And I think about this issue of seeing. And, and I think about a text, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll read it. Ephesians 3, I think I gave it to you guys. I, I wasn't going to read this, but I think I will now. Ephesians 3 Back at verse 14, Paul has just spoken to the church at Ephesus, and he he has said some really exquisite, extraordinary things about the expansive love and the inclusive grace of God. And right in the middle of this theological treatise, Paul literally says, he just interrupts himself and is theologizing, and he says, for this reason, all the stuff I've been writing about, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I just dropped down, i got to stop right here and I've got to pray for you, because I've just said some things that are so mind-blowing I don't want you to miss them. And so I bow my knees to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, everybody named by this Father, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit, that's the presence of Jesus in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, now watch this, Paul said, I'm just praying for you that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And maybe I'm making too much out of this, but it's interesting that he gives us four dimensions there. Fully aware that we live in a three-dimensional world, the Ptolemaean universe he lived under was a very simple, almost two-dimensional world, and yet, for some reason, and again, maybe I'm making too much of this, it's just interesting to me that he doesn't give us two or three dimensions. He said, what I really want you to know about divine, about divine love, what I really want you to know is the width and the length and the depth and the height. He stretches it to four dimensions, which is mind-boggling and, and beyond our capacity to even understand. I, I want you to know that the dimensions of who you are and whose you are, the dimensions And the divine fabric by which you were created, the dimensions of God's love, they are so multidimensional, and the world that you presently fit into so pales in comparison to the fullness of what there is, that you might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Isn't that great? That you might know something unknowable. That you might live into it in such a way that it shuts down your intellectual side but intuitively you are knowing what you can't know intuitively you're experiencing something and you can't fully understand it but you don't have to the distilled effect of that reality is so deep in you Paul said that you might know that which is unknowable and that you might be filled with all the fullness of God Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. How large is God? How big is God? How big are you? How how unbelievably, unknowably, dimensionally beyond? Paul said this God can do exceedingly abundantly, not just above not just above what we ask, but above what we think. In other words, Paul is saying, you can't think big enough. You can't ask big enough. You can't believe large enough. You can't imagine how inclusive and how vast and how good God is. And then Paul says something absolutely remarkable that I think is one of the greatest gifts of the divine to all of us. Unto him who is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we ask or think, lest this become so transactional and God become so other, so far away, and all of this that God can do comes only through our pleading, our begging, our transaction. Paul said, the one who is able to do these things above what we ask or think does it according to the power that works in us all of this power that I'm talking about Roy it's a power that does not work in the heavens it works in you and in me Carl Jung said your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart who looks outside dreams who looks inside awakens that's what Jesus was trying to say The one who looks outside dreams. The one who looks inside awakens. Your vision becomes clear only when you look into your heart. Someone said, well, isn't that diverting attention away from the glory of God? No, because the glory of God is that God invested that in us. Everything is according to the power that works in us, Christ in us not Christ in history, not Christ in a trinity only, not Christ in the heaven, but Christ in us, our hope of glory, not a hoarding God who keeps it all for his narcissistic self, but a God who so shares that God says, everything that I can do, I have invested in you. Can you ask it? Can you think it? Can you see it? Can you vision it? Can you believe it? Or will you continually, with jealousy and transaction, look outside of yourself and dream dreams, pipe dreams? Or will you look inside to the Christ that lives inside and awaken there? I think about the ministry of Jesus and the way people saw him. And how so much of what we get out of spirituality, religion, if you want to call it that, so much of what we get out of life itself comes through how we see life. It's amazing that those who see a negative universe, those who see an averse world, those who, see, those who see a scarce world, a universe that lacks, it's amazing how that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and create the very thing they see so that they verify and prove that they're right. And it's amazing that people who choose to see an abundant universe, a world that God called good and never changed his mind on, a world that God believed the only way to redeem was to underscore and verify how good he thought it was by coming to the world in flesh and material himself. It's amazing if you believe in an abundant universe, a good universe, if you believe in the goodness of your own heart, it's amazing how those things can become self-fulfilling prophecies as well. What do you see? I think about when Jesus, that quintessential moment when he hung on the cross, um, history says that literally on the cross, he probably with those crucified near him, fingertip to fingertip was no further than three feet from them. And what's really stunning and the real power of that story, one of the powerful moments of that story is when a guy on one side of him looks at him and says, "I I know who you are." Would you remember me? And those powerful words, Jesus looks at him and says, oh, I will remember you, and this day we'll be in paradise together. That's, that's how good this is. You can go from that to paradise simply by seeing. The Bible said three feet on the other side of him, there was a guy cursing and spewing waspish accusations against him, saying, You're nothing. You're just the same as we. And and if you are who you say you are, get us off of these crosses. Hey, think about it. Three feet equidistant from Jesus, two people see completely different things. Positioned in proximity to Jesus, and one prays and another curses. One sees a Messiah and one sees a thief. And and the difference isn't in Jesus, the difference is in their eyes, isn't it, right? Having eyes to see one saw, having eyes to see the other didn't see. Why do some people see and why do some people not see? For crying out loud, why do I see sometimes and why do I not see sometimes? These are good spiritual questions, but the reality is the capacity. Jesus did not override either of their sights. Jesus did not override either of their visions. He simply did what he always does, and he positioned himself equidistant from both and allowed their processes to work out. And one saw a thief and one saw a Messiah, and they were looking at the same thing. Amazing. I think about a woman who went to a well one day, Samaritan woman. She'd been married five times. She'd given up on marriage, and now she was living with a guy. And the Bible, it's, it, it's a beautiful story. The Bible says that as Jesus and his disciples were going to that well, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Hey, guys, go into town, get some Kentucky Fried Chicken, come back, and let's have dinner. Interesting, you don't have to send 11 guys into town for a couple of buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken, but he clears them out and he says, I want you to get out of here. The disciples go into town, and as they go into town, literally as they're going into town, they pass a woman, and there's no interaction there. They probably even scooted over to the side of the road. This was a Samaritan woman. She was religiously a dog to them. Maybe they even knew something about her, the fact that she had had this serial relational pattern in her life. The reality is they had everything that she needed but there was no access either way because of the way they saw her and probably she saw them not much differently. And She gets to the well and when she gets to the well Jesus is sitting there and she starts scooping water and Jesus looks at her and says something that's just uncanny. He says to her as a Jewish man, I mean, theologians have been telling us for years that she even went to the well at that particular time of day because it was a time when people were scarce because she was ashamed even amongst her own people. And Jesus looks at this woman, a dog and dogged, and he says to her, could I have a drink of water? And she looks at him shocked and she says, you're a Jewish man? and you're asking me to give you a drink of water from my bucket, from my ladle? I mean, the bottom line is, I will taint you. I have cooties, I am gross. I am the untouchable child in fifth grade that everybody touches and has their germs. I'm the butt of every joke and you're gonna drink? You're gonna take communion and use a common cup with me? Jesus looked at her and he knew that pain. He knew that pain of exile. He knew that that deep sense of shame. And like any good doctor, he went right to the point of that pain and he pressed on it. So counterintuitive. You go to the physician and you say it hurts here and they begin pressing. Because pain instructs. This isn't torture, this is method. She exposes her pain to him, and she says, why would you drink? I mean, If I were you, I wouldn't drink from my cup. I can barely drink from my cup. I don't even look at myself in the eye anymore. And he presses right on that shame and says, you've been married five times, and the man you're with now you're not even married to, and she doubles over and says, my God. Get the salt shaker away from my wound. And he looks at her and he says, but your problem's not men, your problem's not relationships, your problem is you're thirsty. And how evil do you have to be to condemn a Haitian child for drinking sewage water? How cruel do you have to be to look at somebody, this is the only way they've known to survive, this is through addiction, through whatever, it's the only, how do you condemn somebody? I remember the little Haitian boys who in my presence made what they call mud pies. They got just enough sugar and just enough grain and they mixed it together with mud and they had measured, they had measured how much dirt they could ingest and still live. And when I asked the mother, why are they eating dirt? She said, it's because it's the only time they have a full feeling. Well, it's crazy to eat dirt. Not unless you're starving. It's crazy to drink sewage water, not unless you don't have clean water. It's crazy to you alcohol that way, drugs that way, sex that way. Not if it's the only thing you have. He pressed on that pain, and he said, your problem's not adultery. God, help the church who meets a woman like that And puts her in a relationship class. God, help us to not miss the point. Jesus said, you're thirsty. You've been drinking from the wrong well. I'm just glad to finally get here and tell you there's a well you can drink from and you'll never thirst again. And if sewage water is the only thing you've had, shake the hands of these men and these marriages. Shake the hands of this imposter. Shake the hands of that bottle and thank them because it was the best friend you had. But there's a better friend now. Make peace with your enemy. It wasn't evil and sin. It was survival. And Jesus said the problem wasn't sex. The problem was thirst. Thirst. And she looks at him and she said, oh my God, you're a prophet. And he smiles and says, I'm a lot more than that. And the Bible says that she finally made her way back to her townspeople and she started telling them the story of what just happened. The epiphany happened for her and she says to them, I've just seen the Messiah. Look at that. He was Jew, he was prophet, and then he was Messiah. And he was indeed all of those things But he was always more than those things, but he only became those things to her when she saw them. At the moment of his Jewishness, he could grace her with a common drink. At the moment of seeing him as prophet, he could give her hope that her future could be better. And out of his physical approximation, out of his physical presence, back in her village, when her heart exploded and she saw the Messiah. In that moment, he could become Messiah to her. Now unto him who is able to be exceeding and abundantly above all that we could ask or think, but according to the power that works in us. For as James, the brother of Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. And sometimes you have not because when you ask, you ask amiss. Asking is all about seeing. And if you're gonna have right, you gotta ask right. and you've got, If you're gonna ask right, you gotta see right. How do you see right? There was one of the first people to the tomb of Jesus was a lady named Mary Magdalene. She had a long and storied relationship with Jesus. And depending on whether you read the Da Vinci Code of the Bible, it can kind of go a couple of different directions. But suffice it to say, she had a good relationship with Jesus. And the biblical relationship is just fine for me. Anything more, you'll have to work that out with Tom Hanks or whoever that was, Mr. Brown. But Mary Magdalene, the Bible says, was this woman whose life had been so touched by Jesus, there was even this there was even this story that she had been possessed of demons and delivered from them. Some believe that she was even in the story of the woman who got down to his feet and wiped his feet with her hair in Simon the Pharisee's house that she was that woman of ill repute. Regardless she loved Jesus and Jesus loved her and post-resurrection The Bible said that she came into the presence of the resurrected Christ. And you would think to yourself, if you come into the presence of the resurrected Christ, it takes care of everything. No, because so much of what happens in our soul is according to the power that works in us. According to the capacity of us to see. You remember, we talk about this often. Jesus said, I have a lot of things I'd like to tell you, but there's no need because you couldn't understand them now if I did tell you. So these things, no matter how good they are, placed in a mind that can't contain them, they don't do anything for you. According to the power that works in us, God is able to be exceeding and abundantly above all we could ask or think. If you're a part of a religious process or a religion at all that is not continually, intermittently blowing your mind, I think that religion needs to be reinvestigated. The nature of the Christ that we see historically, I don't think is the story of someone who came and blew everybody's mind in the first 30 years and then shut it down and asked us to continue to regurgitate the memorized memories of other people. But I think the whole point is that what Jesus did in such a mind-blowing fashion in His earthly ministry, He is continuing to do today, and I personally cannot be a part of a faith that is not continually exposing me and expanding me and widening my heart and blowing my mind. I spiritually had my mind blown twice yesterday in ways that I don't think the day before drew I could have had my mind blown. There was even a moment in one of the mind blowing uh, experiences that I thought to my, I even had a sense of shame what has been wrong with me that I hadn't seen this before? Gail, I was like, how how did I not see this before? What's wrong with me? And immediately something spoke to me and said, that's such a horrible way of beating yourself up. God's not doing that to you. Get out of that shame. Today's the right day. This is the right moment. You're ready now. I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them. But I promise you, God said, as soon as you can bear them, And so you know what I want to do in my spiritual life? I don't want to just go around having epiphanies. I just want to make myself bearable. I just want to make my eyes clear. I just want to be open so that all along the way, this Jesus, this divine presence could blow my mind exceedingly and abundantly above everything I could ask or think I just want to put my eyes out there, clear them as much as I can, do as much eye salve work as I can do and say, I'm here, I'm looking. He got up out of the grave and Mary Magdalene met him and when she met him, the Bible says she fell down at his feet and you think this is going to be a worshipful moment between this woman who loves Jesus and the Messiah And as she falls down at his feet, immediately she grabs hold of those legs and she says to Jesus, where did you lay Jesus? And Jesus looks at her and realizes, she thinks I'm the gardener who tends this cemetery. Now at that moment because it's according to the power that works in you, because it's according to the way you see things, at that moment, the God of the universe manifest in Jesus was limited to telling her her how to plant cucumbers and tomatoes because if you see him as a gardener, he can be a gardener for you. And she says, where did you lay him? And the one who could have given her peace gives her no peace because... The peace of God is never pushed, it's always pulled and received. Augustine, the divine can't give the clenched fist. We're not macheting our way to God's door. Most of the time, God's macheting His way to our door. And our eyes were so fixed and so holden. What had done that to her? Grief. Grief can do that. Your eyes can get so filled with tears that you can't see anything. The Bible said one day Jesus was walking on the water, heading out to save his disciples, and when they saw him, their eyes were so filled with fear they thought he was a ghost and a demon, and they started screaming louder. Your eyes can literally see God is the devil if you're not careful. You can look at circumstances and things and say, I know this is demonic. I know this is horrible. Only to have God walk through that mirage and say, surprise, it's me. Fear, tears can so dim your eyes that you can't see clearly. And that had evidently happened to Mary because she find she's lost Jesus. She's got her arms around Jesus, but she can't see him. She calls him a gardener, and at that moment, God's limited to being a gardener for her. But God doesn't leave us like that. God drops gracious hints. And after listening to her pain long enough, Jesus does not reach down, slap her on the forehead and say, wake up, woman. Jesus looks down gently. It's the way it always is. Life does this for you. Jesus never slaps us upside the head. Jesus leans down and he says to her, Mary. And in that moment, filled with heartbreak and fear, she thinks to herself, how does he know my name? And as she begins to look up, he says it again, Mary. And nobody said her name the way he said her name. And through the prism of tears, she says, Rabboni, it's you. And the peace of God that passes all understanding flows into her heart. But remember, Paul said, let the peace of God that passes all understanding rule in your heart. Let. It's never pushed. It's always received. And this spiritual midwife called God never kicks down doors, but always gently with words and names and whispers from the wings of the stage, certain uncertain things, he whispers to us our name. And it causes us to look up and the sound of our name on his tongue is eye for our eyes and we say, it's you, it's you. Time fails me to tell you all the stories in the ministry of Jesus. We could talk a long time about Philip who at the very last hour of Jesus' life looked at him so frustrated and said, show us the Father and it will be enough for our religious experience. And Jesus smiled and shook his head and sighed and said, oh, Philip, have I been so long time with you and you haven't known me? Physical proximity Church experience, religious experience does not. Physical approximation with the gods, the divine, it does not do the trick. It's our eyes. It's our eyes. It's our eyes. Have I been so long time with you? You haven't known me. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Time fails To talk about the woman with the issue of blood, the Bible says the whole crowd was pressing on Jesus, shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. Nothing was happening, just a big crowd thronging Jesus. And the Bible says there's a woman who has this issue of blood, this horrible issue that she's been dealing with for years, unremitting, unrelenting. And the Bible said that she was so desperate in her weakness she began pressing away through the crowd and she could not get there. And she was hurting so badly. You can get to hurting so badly that you lose decorum and you lose any sense of anything but just this desperate need for truth and touch. And the Bible says she got down on all fours and she began working her way through the crowd until she lunged and touched the hem of his garment. And when she touched the hem of his garment, it was like he was hit by lightning. He stopped and said, who touched me? Wow. Who touched me? And the disciples looked at him and they said, What do you mean, who touched you? There's thousands of people squashing you. Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical proximity. I'm not talking about physical touch. I'm not talking about physical eyes. He could have just as easily said, Who just saw me? Who, who just got me? Who touched me? Because you can touch without touching and you can see without seeing and you can get without getting. And you can do all of this and sing all these songs and do all of this and miss the point. You can be three feet fingertip to fingertip from God. You can wrap your arms around a resurrected Christ and think you're talking to a farmer. You can look at Jesus and beg for a picture of the Father, not knowing you've had it all along. And you can be shoulder to shoulder with Jesus in full religious approximation and not be touching him at all, nor being touched by him. But she touched him and he said, who touched me? And they said, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. He said, no, not like that. Somebody just touched me, watch this. He said, because virtue went out of me. I felt a transfusion take place. Somebody just got a transfusion of divinity. Who was it? And the woman stood up and raised her hand and Jesus essentially said, you saw me, didn't you? And he said, your faith. He could have just as easily said, your soul's eyes have made you whole. Wait a minute, I thought God makes us whole. He said, your faith just made you whole because that's the way God works. Now unto him, what's 2016 going to be for all of us? Well, I just want to say, now unto the one who is able to do exceeding and abundantly above everything you could ask or think. According to the power that works in you. Unto him be glory in the church now and through all generations forever and ever and ever he is no hoarder our God is not a narcissist our God is the one who shares glory and abundance and life and it is never pushed doors are never kicked down but I pray for you as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. I pray that all this year there will be, through life's circumstances, the divine whispering of your name. I pray in the middle of your grief. I pray in the middle of your struggle. I pray when you've got your arms wrapped around a gardener looking for a resurrected Christ and can't find him. I pray that life somehow will afford you those gifts of hearing your name whispered and you will look up and you will see how wide and how long and how high and how deep and how huge and how immeasurable and how unknowable and good and loving this God and the gift of life God has given us truly is. I pray for you that 2016 will take you above the domain of your asking and thinking into the unknowable world and I pray for you as I pray for myself that this will be a mind-blowing year that you will look back on a year from now and say, wow, who would have thunk it? I couldn't have even imagined. And we pray together now in the peace, And the grace and the love of a God who has shared. We pray, opening ourselves, stretching ourselves beyond our minds, beyond our intellect. Intuitively, we open our heart and we ask ourselves, what do I want to feel in 2016? Secure? Alive? Peace? Joy? Happy? Abundant? Safe? What do I want to feel? What could life do for me? Our God, you are able to not simply do these things, but you are simply able to do more than we can imagine. And I pray for my beloved brothers and sisters today as I pray for myself, that you would take us from the three, three dimensions that we know and control into the fourth dimension of your unknowable love, and that we would experience it this year, beginning even today, and that we would allow the peace of God and the goodness of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the abundance of God that passes all understanding we would allow that to rule and take root in our hearts we thank you for 2015 we give you thanks for the year to come touch our eyes now with ISAV that we might see it for it truly is a matter of the eyes. We pray these things now with hope and expectancy and joy. We pray them in Christ's name. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. Amen.